I get to invite up Jeff this morning. Hi, Rachie. Hi. You see, Rachie's baby's taking up a little more space. Little baby Jeffrey. You know, I, I suggested that to my kids about 20 times. I said, my daughter says, who names her kid Jeff? I said, my late parents. Parental, no, she, she knows better to know. If it ever sounds like guilt, she'll presume we're joking. Hey, welcome, welcome today. Um, my hope today is, as we're sharing and praying and worshiping, that everyone experiences a degree of greater uh, independence by being dependent and attached to Jesus into one another in healthy relationships. That's the kind of independence I can celebrate the most. I love it. And I, by the way, I like fireworks. I'm recovering pyromaniac. I don't know if I'm recovering, Adrian just doesn't let me have the matches, but uh, does that mean recovering or just being managed? I don't know. It's not clear, but I want to especially uh, welcome the folks uh, from Franklinton Abbey. And, you know, it's always hard for me to know how to tell a story of our church in the same way as, like, when did any church begin? Because everything begins with something else, and it's kind of arbitrary where you start. And it's hard to, like, I cannot separate my story from other churches that I've been at or been in friendship and partnership with, frankly, it's, 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 it's messy and ethereal because I believe we all have the same spirit. And Rachel shared the, our mission statement, which has always kind of been my rule of life. I'm getting a little feedback here. It's probably me. But should I move somewhere else? Okay, I don't want to, I mean, I'm not, you know what? One thing is not a value of our church is polish <laughs> nor smoke machines because they make or strobing lights i mean i was at a conference with jared once and i remember i was like dude i gotta get out of here i think when you have a seizure because the worship lights i didn't know what that anyway sorry i'm not commenting on other light shows okay um or smoke machines i would i'd probably take incense before smoke machines but what i wanted to say uh you know with franklin abbey here when when we planted our church and when you know, at the very beginning, uh, some of you, uh, you know, Brian, John, Jared, Jamie, what uh, Rayleigh was, I think, that when we were just in that beginning, like, core of people, we always would try to talk every week is we want to be a community of prayer that engages suffering. And that just came from Jesus' life. You know, the beginning of Luke, Matthew, Mark, whatever, it's that Jesus gathered his disciples, he heals the sick, welcomes the unwelcome, uh, uh, includes people and then he jets he ghosts on the disciples and goes into a silent place to pray and practice silence and that's just kind of a in the wording and that was like this is jesus's day day by day this is how he gets it done and he showed us a way that we can actually live and follow jesus in a way that doesn't uh conform to the way other religious allegiances have to work where jesus is giving to us and imparting to us not draining us dead like a god vampire or striking us with lightning bolts like this. But saying that, that community of prayer engages suffering, I don't know of really any church that's done more of a job of going to the next level on doing that and partnering with local organizations and being faithful in our neighborhood than Franklinton Abbey. I, I've got to say, it's like I am really wanting to play catch up with the way you guys have deepened the practice of prayer in the practice of silence, in the practice of unhurriedness, the, the practice of Sabbath. 
And it's, you know, as kind of currently as a lead pastor here, I'm recognizing how much I need to be receiving. And I'm hoping, I'm, I, I want to impose on you guys some. In fact, I was just talking to Jordan. Was, I've been really reading a lot about the Jesus prayer and, and Henri Nouwen and Calistos Ware. And I was talking about the books he's read. And like, oh my gosh, soul brother, except he's gone a couple of hours. Like, can you help me understand this book after I read it? It's like, and that's something we expect for this whole church. Everyone has something that someone else doesn't have. Everyone has something someone else doesn't have. And I'm just, what, what you guys are kind of visiting with us, or this becomes the next chapter of your journey in the order in the Abbey, uh, it, it's going to change our church. But I don't think it's going to change our church with, uh, like, changing our vision. But I think it's going to change our ability to engage our vision to whatever extent God has that. All right? And I love that. Because I've realized the real journey towards Christ is less shame, more hunger. Less shame, more curiosity. The more you learn about prayer, the less you know. I know it sounds all zen and everything, but not in a shameful way. It's like, oh my gosh, there's more. And I believe you guys have a lot of more just interpersonally or whatever way to offer us. I don't know how that looks. Um, you can ask anyone. I'm not like a master strategist. I have a hard time thinking in linear fashion stuff, but I'm excited whatever God has going on. So having said that, we have a mammoth Bible passage to deal with today. And just a point of introduction, I'm going to ask our readers to come up. Your readers can come up now. We're going to use the remote mic here. Um, but I wanted to say something as a form of introduction here. So today I've called the message Learning to Fail Jesus Style. Learning to Fail Jesus Style. And I often remark that I think Jesus would get fired from a lot of American churches because he wouldn't pass muster with the cultural values we have in the West. In every, I think a lot of churches, to the point where I think Jesus would get fired if he was, say, a director of evangelism at a church or something like that. All right? You know, I, I think Jesus... Uh, so I want to talk about how to fail like Jesus. And I want to qualify that statement. So if the, the heresy police, uh, you know, just hear me out, okay? And then you can uh, confront me with heresy. But um, it's a rainy day, like right now. And if you're like me, I'm a little vulnerable to that. But I'm hoping we can have some cheer when we embrace the failure of Jesus. We can have fun failing the same way. So... I want Naomi and ABG to uh, read for us. They're going to tag team. I'll get out of the way so you guys can kind of hand the mic back and forth. And uh, let's just worship by listening to the word. Matthew 9, verses 1 through 34. Jesus climbed into a boat and went back across the lake to his own town. Some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Be encouraged, my child. Your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law said to themselves, That's blasphemy. Does he think he's God? Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you have such evil thoughts in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up and went home. 
Fear swept through the crowd as they saw this happen, and they praised God for giving humans such authority. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other uh, disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. One day, the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him, why don't you, your disciples fast like we do and the Pharisees do? Jesus replied, do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday, the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the old skins would burst from the pressure, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine is stored in new wineskins so that both are preserved. As Jesus was saying this, the leaders of a synagogue came and knelt before him. My daughter has just died, he said, but you can bring her back to life again if you just come and lay your hand on her. So Jesus and his disciples got up and went to him. Just then a woman who had suffered for 12 years uh, with constant bleeding came up behind him. She touched the fringe of his robe, for she thought, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Jesus turned around, and, as, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be encouraged. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus arrived at the official's home, he saw the noisy crowd and heard the funeral music. Get out, he told them. The girl isn't dead. She's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him. After the crowd, after the crowd was put outside, however, Jesus went in and took the girl by the hand, and she stood up. The report of this miracle swept through the entire countryside. After Jesus left the girl's home, two blind men followed along behind him, shouting, Son of David, have mercy on us. They went right into the house where he was staying, and Jesus asked them, Do you believe I can make you see? Yes, Lord, they told him, we do. Then he touched their eyes and said, Because of your faith, it will happen. Then their eyes were open and they could see. Jesus sternly warned them, don't tell anyone about this. But instead, they went out and spread his fame all over the region. When they left, a demon-possessed man who couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. So Jesus cast out the demon, and then the man began to speak. The crowds were amazed. Nothing like this had ever happened in Israel, they exclaimed. But the Pharisees said, he can cast out demons because he is empowered by the prince of demons. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Is it praise be to God or thanks be to God? 
thanks be to God. Thanks are praise, but I, I want to be a little, because whenever Adrian and I say it after we read the scripture in the morning, we always say like different things, kind of like when we do the Lord's Prayer, you know, but it works, all right? Um, what a huge chapter. I think this chapter is like the season uh, finale of a multi-season show where we see all these revelations about the authority of Jesus. Like we get enacted a major Jesus-like uh, knowledge bomb going on. And then it ends with this unfinished hard bit leading us into the next season. And that is the disciples are saying, nah, nah, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. Not the disciples, the, the Pharisees are just like, we see one of the greatest concentrated demonstrations of the wide power of Jesus and realize it, a, a large group of people were not persuaded. Now, we had one exception of a religious leader, and that was a synagogue leader whose daughter had died. And we call that, you know, before any kind of change begins, there's the desperation factor. And the desperation factor is one of the best ways to liberate people from being stuck and all of us know there's a little cycle of crap that happens in our lives, and eventually something hits that brings us to a point of desperation. No one gets out unscathed, am I right? Um, this, um, this passage, first of all, Jesus has full authority. He's fully in charge, and we are somewhat in authority and somewhat in charge. We are given authority. All humans have a level of authority. Um, and Jesus has all authority, and part of his authority was used to give us authority because he's non-coercive God. He's not into sock puppets. That's a lame form of entertainment. Uh, Jesus is into relationship, all right? So this thing, um, our authority is our free will. Our, our, our free will doesn't mean we can do anything we want because we live on a planet full of free will agents. If you want to go swimming in the Oantangi River and not get sick if you swallow the water, and that's your free will, well, because of everyone else polluting it, companies jumping sewage into it, you don't have the free will not to get sick. But you have the free will to know how you will interact with the system of free will people, right? So we do all have authority, and every person here has a sense of empowerment. In this um, authority we see, first of all, we see the authority to forgive, and also the authority to heal illness. And this, uh, I want to say a word about this and then rush through the rest and then get to the main deal and how to fail like Jesus. All right, the authority to forgive is Jesus heals someone. He forgives someone. There's no law against healing per se, just when you were allowed to. Like you had certain hours of the week you weren't allowed to heal within the Pharisees' view. But yeah, go heal. But if you offer forgiveness to someone, that is a claim to be the ultimate arbiter of the fate of every human being on earth. Jesus offering to forgive someone of their sins, it, I mean, he's not aiming to be subtle here. He's, this is like potentially one of the steps towards capital punishment in his culture. And Jesus just makes the brilliant and simple rhetorical point, what's easier? To heal or to forgive. And what I love about the forgive element, though, because of the work of Christ and because of Christ's commissioning of us, we have 100% of the power to forgive all the time. 
There is no circumstance where God can't give us, in partnership with the Holy Spirit and being in a community of people cheering you on, we can always forgive. Now, whenever I say this, I have to do a caveat because we have a lot of confusion about what forgiveness is in our culture. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Forgiveness is when we say, God, this abuse, this offense, whatever has been done to me, carry it on your shoulders and heal me from all the wounds of this offense. It is, you can forgive, and I've had to do this, forgive people who are dead because it's not about them. It's about releasing an offense. And I shared last week, rather embarrassingly, how intense it's been, some of my processes of forgiveness. But we can't heal everyone. I, I, I think we are missing out on how many opportunities we are able to pray for a, a mystical, miraculous healing from the power of the Holy Spirit. Our problem is we don't pray enough. Our, our opportunity is we can pray a lot more. But we live in a complicated we live in a complicated system where sometimes, no matter how much you pray, it's not like there's a perfect formula or five steps where someone will be healed. You know, the fact of the matter is we live, we live in a world full of free will agency, not just humans, but spiritual beings too. And all that to say, it's complicated and it's above all our pay grade. The one thing we know is we can be obedient. We can't always understand, but we can always forgive. And frankly, I can't, but reconciliation sometimes should not happen. I say this to a number of uh, people who've been in sexually abusive relationships. I said, you know, God values your life so much. You are so precious to your daddy, daddy God. He doesn't want you to be in this place where you are re-traumatized. You know, there are times someone is not safe to reconcile. Reconciliation takes three people, one person, you, and God. Forgiveness takes two people, you and God. Forgiveness guaranteed, reconciliation, when it happens, Holy Ghost party. I love it when reconciliation happens. But we do, just like with universal healing, we don't have the final say in who gets healed. So, but going to the other authority, we see the authority to forgive, authority to heal, authority to include the enemy of the people. Matthew, who was a traitor to his own people. Authority to engage the unclean. Authority to awaken the dead. And something I think in particular is an invitation for us. Authority to impart vision to the blind and speech to the mute. In one way, I think God wants to invite us where in his authority, he wants to open our eyes to see what he is doing in the world and partner with what he is doing. To silence our hearts and minds and spirits where our eyes and our vision can clear up like we get Holy Spirit LASIK surgery where we can see what God is already doing. And in part, speech. When I think a lot of us are hesitant to speak of the truth that has changed our lives because of a lot of very uh, understandable reasons, which is what we're going to really go into now. Um, I'm going to just focus on the end of this passage and the implication. And that is... The Pharisees were not convinced. In fact, they said, oh, it's by demons he's doing that. The Pharisees were not convinced. And I want us to meditate on this because I think even though this is a sad thing that happened. By the way, in church history, we know that post-resurrection of Jesus, we, we don't have this as demonstrated in the scriptures, but we know um, historically that a lot of Pharisees did jump on the bandwagon and found life. 
They were kind of like the second wave, a number of them of converts, to the point of like uh, Christianity for a long time was regarded just as another denomination within Judaism until AD 70. So their story was not over, which means hope. Um, but many folks, I mean, many folks shy away from discussing Jesus. And I've gone through many seasons of shying away from sharing my story with Jesus, even though it's like been the most significant thing in my life. The thing is, I have a lot of things I can talk about where I don't necessarily need to invite Jesus in, um, even though in my mind it all connects. And uh, we have, I think, like four arenas of worry generally pervade our lives. And that's, this is not an exhaustive list. Um, oh, first about the Pharisees. These guys were not dummies. The Pharisees were the Ivy League of ancient Israel. They were fully filled with great intellect, and they were probably, frankly, the Pharisees were probably, one Pharisee probably had more Bible knowledge than all the disciples combined at a given point. These guys were scholars, devoted to scholarship. Um, and the, they weren't dumb. They were often physically present to Jesus, so they got to hear the teachings of Rabbi Jesus. They were front row witnesses to his compassion and miraculous power. And they were often invited to personally interact with Jesus. So this wasn't that they were excluded from what everyone else got to see about Jesus. Now, they were, they were by their own volition excluded from getting it because of, they were married to their presuppositions. But um, this passage... I want to share in light of the end of Matthew's gospel. And that's where everyone gets to play. Go into this whole planet. Cross every cultural barrier so people can become Jesus livers. Not like Jesus livers, but the embodied Christ. But, but live like Jesus. People can be filled, restored, and play the role of Jesus in the humble, foot-washing, servant way. Go, therefore, and make disciple of all ethnos, all people. Right? That's why, that, that, that's why nationalism is always a sin, you know. Gratitude is awesome for your nation. But nationalism, Christian nationalism, we see this, is because it, it kind of contradicts the all-nation mandate. It, it, it kind of contradicts, like, the whole apex of this gospel. But um, we are often prevented from really walking in the confidence that Jesus has in us. Because I want to tell you, I think Jesus has a lot more confidence in each one of you than you do. I think Jesus trusts a lot of you more than you trust you. And I think Jesus is infinitely more comfortable with a mess each and every one of you bring to the table. Jesus can hang with your mess better than you can in your head speak a lot of times. That is Jesus. Jesus is the easiest person to please. I can give you like five bobs. I'll just skip all the examples of why I think Jesus is easy to please. But first thing I think is a lot of us don't think we're good enough to bear the message. And that's shame. That's the voice of shame. A lot of us just think, well, if everyone knew what was going on in my resume of screw-ups and what I'm currently struggling with, I'm just not qualified to share. Second thing is a lot of us think we're just not informed enough. We're not smart enough to describe our faith in Jesus. We don't know enough theology. We don't know this or that or the other. A lot of us think, well, I know a lot of knowledge, but I freeze in a conversation. A lot of us think, I'm not clever enough to respond to people's questions or arguments. And finally, a lot of us just are worried about rejection. 
Because frankly, most people here have encountered rejection, and you know what it feels like. And what's at stake if you share this? I mean, I know so many people who've lost parts of their family's willingness to even be in community with them because they follow Jesus. And this is a... I want you guys to think, which one of these worries pervade my life? So I want to do a, a deal where we could make this place kind of a quasi-private place, bow heads, close eyes, whatever, and whatever position of the hands or anything that helps your brain and heart open up, is I just want you to imagine yourself talking to Jesus. Jesus just showed up at your house or whatever, maybe brought your favorite dessert, and, he's, and Jesus is just asking, what is it? What worries you about this? What worries you about being transparent in your spirituality? And I want you to just, for the next, I want to give it a whole 60 seconds, imagine what Jesus says to you. Holy Spirit, come. Amen. Well, you hold on to that. And, you know, God forbid maybe some of you in your imagination, you're just hurting so much, you just thought Jesus berated you. I hope to God. And if that, by the way, if that happened, it wasn't Jesus. That was maybe the pizza you had last night or something. But I want to say some things that at least spoke to me in reading this idea, or this passage, specifically about what some might call the failures of Jesus. Um, because I believe this story, the whole story of Jesus, is an invitation to set us free from our insecurities progressively. Um, Jesus might get failed from a lot of churches. I heard recently, and no, this is not a joke, it wasn't an Onion article or whatever, but there's a pastor that like had a quota for how many people you had to lead to Christ every day to stay employed at their church or something. And it, it actually is a true story, but I don't want to go too deeply. But this idea of somehow we can coerce and manipulate people into praying some little four sentences so we can get off their back and have check marks in the box of our little... You know, it's kind of like this frat boy thing, getting notches in the bedpost. You know, how many people can you coerce into repeating some words? And I'm like, oh my gosh. Jesus had, I'm sure, had a lot of days where no one followed him. Jesus had times where he had 12, 12 or 40 people stay with him and thousands leave him. Jesus uh, oftentimes, I mean, Jesus would initially convince people, then he would uh, be more explicit about what he was talking about. People would say, see ya. You know, Jesus, Jesus was not this master rhetorician that made everyone agree with him. And frankly, it probably wasn't because of his lack of clarity 
his lack of intelligence or a lack of the grace he demonstrated or the lack of power or the, the, the genius in communication. And Jesus was a compassionate genius. Jesus could show up in a place where there was no greater way to embody compassion than Jesus. And people weren't persuaded. I mean, one time Jesus, like, you know, he had this huge group of people and he shrunk it immensely. Like, okay, we're going to start, we're going to open interviews for a new Messiah here. Apparently, uh, yeah, whatever. But when we think we're not good enough to share the message, um, I want to encourage you. Many of the people with the best perspective on Jesus tend to be the most silent. Many people who have an understanding of their need for Jesus and other people's need for Jesus and have really encountered him are so meek and tender and maybe poor in spirit and all these other beatitude things where they're not the first one to jump and be assertive. You know, a lot of times there's not space for those people in church because you have to be some extrovert who has this temperament style and be like this person or that person. But God can give the meek a courage to share with authenticity, transparency, and humbleness. You know, many of you are familiar with old school. I don't know who's doing it now, but Brother Jed on campus would yell at everyone and call everyone whores and whatnot and pretend to have insight in their lives. And the poor guy could never tell a Bible story in its entirety. He would do this, gish, he would just verse, 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 verse. And actually, I love the way, I mean, my friend uh, Jay Pathak, who kind of leads our, organ, our denomination or whatever it is right now, uh, had the best way of responding to Jed. He would get in the background and go, Hey, Jed, just tell us one of Jesus' stories. Tell us about Jesus. Because he literally, I, I've never been there where he ever actually shared a teaching of Jesus or told us a whole Jesus story. And so it was all, and that was the only time I ever saw the dude get stumped was when people kept trying to make it about Jesus instead of refuting each point, point by point. He says, where's the Jesus? Um, and this um, shame we have the shame that keeps us from sharing. I want you to think at the woman at the well. And a lot of times the woman at the well is painted as someone, oh, she lived, was with five different guys, da, 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 da. And she, you know, a woman of ill repute, and Jesus loved her, and then she became an evangelist to everyone. Now, she guaranteed had an ill repute, but we, you need to know in that culture, it was a culture where men held the power. And if this woman had been in these serial relationships or been divorced and stuff, it wouldn't be because she was walking in this feminist liberty, just going around doing whatever she wanted, and she was a new modern woman or what. It was because this woman would have been in serial exploitive and abusive scenarios. So I just want to figure that. The woman at the well is not a story of even the most sinful person gets saved. It's a, this is a story of how the person who's been exploited can immediately, and not even brought up in historic Judaism. This woman was a Samaritan, which was like a cult of Judaism. And she went and spread what tiny bit of mercy she had from Jesus, despite all the cultural shame she had, to everyone. So that is the empowerment message. No matter how much hurt, exploited, and how little you know, you've got something to share. And it's just about my Jesus. You know, it might be I was blind, and now I see. Well, what, by what authority? I don't know. Ask him. I'm still figuring this out. You're the brainiacs. So... I think if this is how Jesus shows up, is whatever you think disqualifies you, 
if you read the Gospels, you'll see you've got plenty to offer here. You know, this, um, a lot of people think we're not informed enough to describe Jesus. Well, frankly, as a matter of fact, post-Nicaea, we have access to more scriptures than any of the disciples did of Jesus's. We have more, we have had more collective thinking and teasing out and learning from the scriptures and discovering like this huge all like Catholic meaning universal church swap shop of creative ways to marinate in the story of Jesus. Every tradition's got some that uh, the disciples were able to do all that they did when the dust hadn't even settled. You think you're not informed enough, go back also to the woman at the well. He knew everything about me. You don't, now I'm saying one way to worship God is to deepen our theological, our, our understandings with our heart minds of the word of God and the experience of Jesus and the teachings of people that have drawn really close to him over the last couple thousand years. We can always level up in that area in a joyful way, but you don't have to think you're an intellectual heavyweight to play this game. And thirdly, a lot of people think, well, I know this stuff, I'm just not clever enough. And, you know, uh, experience eats cleverness for breakfast. Experience eats cleverness for breakfast. If you have had an experience of God, you know, the only way I really talk about my faith with anyone outside of these walls is like, here's how I'm struggling. Here's how I'm beginning to encounter Jesus. Adrian and I had this real big struggle several years ago, and Jesus helped us through it. So I have faith he's going to help me through now, and here's why. You know, the only way I've never... And I, I thought... I. I remember in college, I read all these books to learn how to win arguments about Jesus. And I found out once you give a good response to someone's objection, then they kind of want to move on to the other topic. And really it is, people are reacting against the cruelty that people traffic in, in the name of Jesus. So the clever argument is Jesus doesn't need your cleverness. Some of you are clever, and that can be really helpful. Just be cautious that we don't go into amygdala mode where we're going to win and own someone in a debate. I used to, I, I make extreme statements sometimes. One time I told a friend of mine who just loved apologetics, which is learning how to win arguments about Jesus, which can be a lot of helpful stuff in there, but he said, I said, tell me who you've ever seen have a robust, initiate a robust relationship with Jesus through apologetics. He goes, well, I had this friend. I said, well, that's cool. I look forward to meeting him. And then, uh, two years later, this friend visited Central Vineyard with him, I said, and he was sharing that, and he brought up, see, I told you. I said, can I ask you, if this person wasn't spending time with you, breaking bread with you, being present to you, accepting how you are, would you have listened to a word they said? No. And I said, so it was both. Like, the, the, the experience of God's love eats every other methodology. And guess what? One thing I know about you people Everyone here, I can say, I think I know almost everyone to one level or another, or know someone who knows you, who I trust they are, is you guys are like some of the most effective communicators of kindness in this entire city, I believe. Some of the most effective communicators of kindness. And, 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 and Kelly's probably the most, just saying. Kelly is the bus stop, uh, the bus stop, uh, yeah, uh, whatever, Jesus-y person. I need to work. Um, 
Now, finally, by the way, in debates with Jesus was very brilliant, but a lot of times the, the Pharisees devised clever traps for him, and Jesus could avoid it without joining the debate. You know, it's kind of like you ever play war games, watch the movie War Games, the only way to win is not to play. Jesus never met people on their, that methodology. He met people on the grounds of where they need compassion. Oh, I'm running way over. So, well, I got the last one. Worry about being rejected. Yes, that's a legitimate worry. Yes, it will happen. I can't give you any reason why that is not a valid objection. My concern is a lot of people, and I don't think this really applies to you guys, all right? But a lot of people think they're being persecuted and rejection just because they're meaner than a snake. A lot of people think they're persecuted because they want the government to evolve into some kind of theocracy that says, this is exactly how you, you need to be, and these are the books you're allowed to read, and here's the way you're allowed to behave in a classroom, and all these different things. That ain't Jesus. Jesus, wasn't, Jesus didn't turn over the tables in any of the schools. Jesus didn't turn over the tables at any of the schools to correct people. He went to the temple where the most righteous religious people were and turned over the tables because they weren't making enough room for the Gentiles and the seekers. So people get mad because people think they're following Jesus by turning over tables that Jesus never even went to. In, in our nation specifically, I can't tell you anything that discourages me, discourages me more in how people have falsely appropriated the name of Jesus to wrap around this cultic loyalty to a theory of politics or a theory of economics or a theory of uh, white supremacy or a theory of anti-immigration or, uh, you know, or a theory of a prison industrial complex where instead of helping reform people, we are punitive. You know, we... Remember where Jesus turned over the tables. And if you get rejected because you're too loving or too gracious, listen, God's going to heal your heart. Um, there's a couple of key relationships that I was excluded from. And the thing is, uh, uh, one of those people is dead, one is living. And I got excluded for not because, I mean, I wasn't during my my butthole stage of Christianity. It was during, like, really being gracious, gracious and confused, not knowing everything. And I got written out because I didn't fit their silo of fundamentalist belief in it, of non-religiosity. And I want to say, honestly, I don't want to give details about this. You know, this is recorded in it, but God's restored me from that. It happened many years ago, and I experienced the ongoing rejection many years. God's restored me from that. Yeah, I still got a big gash and scar in my life, but it's not stopping me. And the thing is, God will heal any rejection you receive in the name of love, and God will offer you gracious repentance and healing from the operating system of unkindness you've embraced for the sake of the gospel. And I just want to end on this note, and this is something uh, Rachel really pointed out. And guys, I'm sorry for going over uh, this is some Rachel pointed out to me, and I gotta share this, uh, that a lot of times uh, our worry is based on the fact we'll be rejected. And uh, here's what she wrote. Rachel wrote, our secure attachment to God and to others doesn't take away the fear of rejection, but it informs and guides us into a safe space when we feel rejection 
knowing we are fully loved and accepted, confidence is where we are coming from. We will never be fully rejected because of our secure attachment to God and his loving people. And I've got an area of privilege in that area that I think was the biggest grace I've ever received in my life from my parents was as a kid, I was non-neurotypical weird kid growing up in the richest suburb in Columbus and not able to color between the lines in any way, shape, or form. And soul sister, you alongside with me, you know what I'm talking about. We know some of the same people, <laughs> all right? Um, and uh, my mom had something she repeated to me literally every day. My mom was clinically depressed. She was the most humble person I knew and she never let it stop her trying to do Jesus stuff with fear and trembling. She said, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It only matters what Jesus thinks, and he's cool with you. It doesn't matter. And I heard every day, because I would come, come home crying, you know, second, third, fourth grade, like almost every day. And she would just hold me until I stopped crying. And you know what? Because of that, I was fully comfortable being weird. Because it was neurologically, that story was told to me that I experienced a secure attachment with my parents, and it was not a leap for me personally to transfer that onto God. I believed it. And then I came to high school, and I got it from more of a fundamentalist perspective at a Christian school, where I would go to bars and clubs and be designated driver, and I would get on the gossip list by religious people. My mom repeated the same phrase, and she paid my, paid my cover charges. And I know like, that makes it easier for me than a lot of you. But maybe it's made it easier for me so I can invite you to say the water's good. So I'd like everyone to stand. I'd like the worship team uh, to come up. And I just want to do a couple more things here as we uh, hopefully... Uh Guys, this is not self-help. This is not pop psychology. This is saying if you have... A beginning encounter with Jesus. You don't have to be certain of anything. You have to just say, I only know this about Jesus. I give it back. I want to follow him. Whatever you, your experience of Jesus is, I ask you to give it back and follow that experience of Jesus you've had. And basically, following Jesus, the initiation, I mean, the gospel is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not four sentences. But the whole gospel begins by saying, I can't do it. It's like the synagogue guy whose daughter just died. It's like, help! The gospel begins with help. One ways, another word for help is repent. It's saying, this ain't working for me. Turn around. You know, repenting of our sins, past, present, future. And not repentance where we're being busted, but we're having the shrapnel of this evil and wicked society that embeds hatred in us sometimes. God begins that lifelong, surrendering to God. Putting our faith in Jesus, you were tortured and killed by the powers of oppression and empire and selfishness, money, sex, power, you name it, and you came back. That you, are, you exhausted the power of evil, so I entrust my life to you. Make me your hands and feet and mouth that other people can know healing too. Come, Lord Jesus, whatever my life is and isn't, I give it to you. Let's do this. That's the gospel. I want to commission you guys. If anyone wants to, I encourage you, if you want to, just hold your hands out. I just want to pray a blessing on you guys. In the name of Jesus Christ, I commission you 
to be gentle, courageous storytellers about what Jesus has done for you. I commission you to be a voice of humble kindness and service that drowns out the lies and behavior of those who falsely appropriate the name of Jesus. That you would become the gentle, meek chorus of sometimes whispered hope that drowns out the haters by the power of the Spirit. And we're, I actually truly feel like something's happening here. Because you guys, God's got you. You're the apple of his eye. Um, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper today. The Eucharist, the Jesus meal, communion. Never settle on what I like to call it. Um, what I do know is this. When we do this together, this is one of the two ways people identified being a part of this club of lovers of God and lovers of people. There's two things that were done. There's baptism and communion. And I believe in some strange way that God is present to us that is undefinable. And also, sometimes controversial, I believe in the open table of communion. Because Jesus served communion to Judas. If Judas gets to share in communion, anyone can share in communion. Because maybe this is the experience of Jesus that you need to have to respond to. And we take the bread as his broken body and the cup of his spilled blood. And we're, but we're saying in this weird way, we want to be, we, we are what we eat. We want to be like Jesus and show up like Jesus in a hurting situation. So, Father God, I pray your presence over these uh, precious elements ready to be received by a precious people who can go out into a world of universal precious people who need your love. We love you, Jesus. Show your presence over these elements. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, Passover meal. He said, this is my body, it's all for you. Same way after the supper, he took the cup, and by the way, he probably took the cup about several dozen times. It was a Passover meal, but he took the cup in an epic, like, climax way and says, this cup is the new paradigm in my blood, the new covenant in my blood. This idea of sacrifice, not power grabbing, is the lifeblood of the kingdom. I mean, that's what he's meant, among a lot of other things. Every time you drink this, drink in remembrance of me. And we do this together, your commission. And I want to ask uh, if when we were silent before God and we're spilling out our, our, our perceived shortcomings of ourselves, I think there's power of God released when you confess that insecurity to another person and have them pray a blessing on you. That person can stand in for Christ and bless you. Like the physical act of opening your mouth and verbalizing, I know this is not true, pray for me, begins it. So we have our prayer team on the sides or grab someone you trust next to you. Confess and receive prayer. I, I honestly think this probably applies to all of us. Lord bless you. You guys are the best. Let's, let's sing the confession together and take the elements together.